I'd like to direct your attention to the final chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. So if you have your copy of God's Word with you, if you will, please turn to that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, there are hardback copies of the Scripture located in the chairs near where you are seated. And please feel free to use those. Before I read Revelation 22, verses 6 through 11, I wanted to give you an update on how things are going with my daughter, Emma. Um, we are continuing just to see small steps of progress. Our cough is getting stronger and, and deeper, and by that, just the sound of it sounds like things are getting stronger. Uh, we're encouraged uh, by that and still moving toward getting the trach out. The, the biggest thing on the horizon is this. In talking with our caregivers at the hospice house, consulting with them, we have set a tentative date in pencil that we will make the transition home on December the 1st. Um, now, we would, yes, that's exciting. We never thought that would happen. So although we would still be under hospice care, that would be a huge step uh, toward her care and getting home. For that to happen, there's a lot of hurdles uh, we've got to jump through and adjustments to make for her care at the house. Uh, we'll be doing some renovations there to make the downstairs accessible to her and a group of men and folks descended on the house yesterday and started moving some shrubs and trees and, and dogs and things that weren't nailed down and everything like that and I, I just was overwhelmed uh, by that and just thank you so very much. So pray as we get closer to that transition that God will supply what is needed to make that happen and he, ha he will. He has every step along the way. Revelation 22. Please follow with me in your copy of God's Word as I read verses 6 through 11. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Lord and Savior, we thank you that by your grace we are saved through faith. Not of any work that we could do, for Lord, we cannot do enough works to be reconciled with you. So this morning we come as those confessing our need for a Savior and praising you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the rock higher than we are. That by your grace you have placed us upon 
And by your grace, Father, we will stand firm. Help us to understand this passage. Lord, I pray that that understanding will be demonstrated in how our lives are changed. Incline our hearts toward your testimony. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, being in our situation, we are somewhat out of the loop of things that are going on. I honestly can't tell you the last time I've sat down and watched a newscast, which, quite frankly, I may be better off for uh, in the long run. So I was kind of, to my embarrassment, surprised when I was told that a hurricane was about to hit the coast of Texas. And then it was a rather large hurricane, Hurricane Harvey. And of course, the, I did flip on the Weather Channel to see what was happening and seeing the reports from there as this massive storm came ashore. Well, I understand that a day or so before Harvey came ashore, when the authorities realized how powerful this storm would be, warnings were sent out across the coast. And an encouragement to evacuate was given. Now in most cases, there were some that heeded that warning. They boarded up their house, they got out of town. But there were always others, others who say, well I've been here for 50 years and I'm not leaving now. If the winds blow me away, so be it. And they stayed. Now when a warning comes, you've got two choices. You either evacuate or you stay. You don't kind of evacuate. You're either all in or you're all out. Now in like manner, we are warned throughout the scripture to be prepared and to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And just as with a hurricane warning, there is no middle ground. You either evacuate or you don't. When it comes to heeding the warning of Jesus' return, there's no middle ground. We are either ready for his return or we're not. He will return. The scripture is clear upon that. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus Christ will return to this earth bodily and physically one day. Jesus himself said this. Let me give you two examples from the lips of Jesus. In Matthew 24, 44, Jesus said, The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In John 14, 3, Jesus said, I will come again. Those are just two examples of many throughout the four Gospels. In Acts, as Jesus has ascended into heaven and been swallowed up in a cloud, the glory of God, two angels appear to speak to the disciples whose mouths are open and they are gawking at the scene they have just witnessed. And the angel said to them in Acts 1.11, This Jesus who is taken away into heaven will come to you in the same way. Paul echoes this in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ will return one day. And the book of Revelation carries that same message throughout each page upon which it is written. And as the book comes to an end, its conclusion emphasizes that message so that you and I do not miss it. I draw your attention back, and this time to verses 6 through 21. Notice three times at each place there is emphasized the same message. First, in verse 7. Behold, I am coming again. 
Look down to verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. Look down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Do you pick up on the repetition that John is making as this, this book of the Bible comes to an end? Jesus Christ is coming soon. And we can trust these words because notice back at verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. They do not change. You can bank upon them. He reminds us of that to so show that the source of these words is God himself. And because there is no source, no authority higher than God, the very fact that God utters them means that we can count with all assurance they will come to pass. Notice how God emphasizes this and shows the continuity of the scriptures in verse 6. He says, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets... Now here in this statement, the angel is showing how the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And how there is a continuity of message between the scripture. Our Bible may be 66 books divided into two testaments, but there is one central message. And that is the glory of God in the redemption of all of creation and those whom he has chosen to elect from the beginning of creation. That message is consistent throughout all of the scripture. And so he says it is the spirit of God working in the prophets who delivers this message. Now this statement does not mean that you and I need to check our credulity at the door when it comes to understanding what people say. There are many who will claim the prophetic mantle in order to gain a following. So how can we gauge the spirits? We are told in Thessalonians that we need to discern the spirits for not every spirit is from God. So what is the measuring mark that we can use to discern who is a true prophet of God and who isn't? Now looking at the totality of scripture in Deuteronomy, we are told that if a person claims to be a prophet... And they say something is going to happen in the future. And it doesn't happen. Guess what? They're not a prophet. But there's another criteria that we are given in the book of Revelation to understand who is a true prophet of God. To show this, I draw your attention back to Revelation chapter 19. In chapter 19 verse 10. John records these words. He says, Then I fell down at his feet. Now the feet here are the feet of an angel. To worship him. But he, the angel, said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. With you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the dividing line. A prophet who is truly of God will make much of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He will proclaim truly who Jesus is and that Jesus has died for our sins. He will point to Jesus Christ and make much of who Jesus is. That is the spirit of prophecy. Because as God directs the spirit of the prophets, they will make much of Jesus. And where Jesus is lifted up, God will be glorified. And where God is glorified, much will be made of Jesus Christ. So it is Jesus who is the dividing line where we can understand truth from a lie. 
Those who would claim to be prophets and those who are actual prophets. The actual prophet will make much of who Jesus Christ is. In fact, that is the whole point of the prophecy of Revelation. Revelation is written to make much of Jesus. I draw your attention to the screens where you'll see Revelation 1 verse 1. At the very beginning of the book, we are told the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Look at the very first phrase, the revelation of Jesus, which God gave him. Now that phrase tells me that the source of the revelation is God. God gave him. The revelation comes from God. The revelation of Jesus tells me the content of that message. Revelation is about revealing more and more of who Jesus is. So that our idea of Jesus is expanded to recognize that he is indeed the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is also the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. He is Jesus Christ incarnate in the flesh, but he is also Jesus Christ, Lord of lords and King of kings. So, in keeping with what we are told here at the conclusion of Revelation, we see that the prophecy is about Jesus. So, the Lord is the spirit of the prophets. That's important because the Lord is going to direct us to look at Jesus. That's what Revelation is about. But notice what he says. He has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, this is the highly debated, well, one of the many highly debated parts of Revelation. What is meant by soon? Were they saying, okay, it's very quickly after this is written that Jesus will return? Or does it show that when he does return, these events will happen quickly? There's no easy answer to that. I believe that the word soon here emphasizes the immediacy that that what John is writing about is now beginning to unfold throughout all of time. In other words, the immediacy, the soonness means there's nothing to prevent it happening at any moment. That the Lord Jesus can return at any moment. That's why the message is given at the end of verse 6 to show his servants what must soon take place. Remember, this is echoed. This is the repetition of chapter 1 verse 1. To show his servants the things that must soon take place. God wants us to be ready. God's not trying to pull a fast one on us with the return of Jesus. He's giving us the information so that we know ahead that it's going to occur. God wants us to succeed. He wants us to be found ready. And when he says what soon must take place, it's like a teacher saying on a Monday morning, one day this week there will be a pop quiz. You don't know which day it will be, but it will happen. So you need to be ready each and every day because the quiz will happen. God is saying, you don't know exactly when it will occur, but you know it will occur. So now the responsibility is up to you to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. So how are we to be ready? What are we supposed to do with this knowledge that Jesus Christ is the soon coming king? Some people read the book of Revelation and they decide, man, this is horrible stuff. I'm going to get ready for it. You know how they get ready? They take about $50,000 and they go in their backyard and they build a bunker. Now, this is big business. Did you know over a billion dollars are spent in the United States each year for bunker preparedness? 
It's estimated there are 3.7 million Americans that are classified as preppers. Not preppy, but preppers. They have in their backyards bunkers filled with clothing, power systems, water filtration systems, communication systems, and they're ready. Now that's, that's an option. I don't think it's a gospel option. There's no way we can be a lot of the world if we're hunkering in our bunker. There's no way we can share the gospel with those that need it if we are scared to step out of our front doors. We are to be in the world but not of it. Another option that some people take is this. They do nothing. Oh, they, they study the book of Revelation. They know the charts of it. They know the different millennial views. They understand pre-trib, post-trib, all male preterists, all the different views. And you know what they do with that knowledge? Absolutely nothing. They can lead you in discussions of it, but it's not made one difference in their life. Did you know in November of 2014, the Food and Drug Administration released rules for calorie counting to be revealed at restaurants? In other words, every time a food is offered, the calories have to be somehow on display. Even at the movie theaters, you're supposed to know how many calories are located in that buttered popcorn. The premise is very simple. If a person goes to eat and they see on one hand there is a hamburger that is at 800 calories, which is a pretty sorry hamburger. Or the chicken sandwich is at 500 calories. That person will choose the chicken because now they know. They know which is healthier. When surveyed, 75% of the Americans have said that they support labeling. Most Americans say, man, that's a great idea. We need to know what the calories are. However, the problem is this. Studies conducted between 2007 and 2013 have explored that the knowledge of the calories and what people are consuming has made zero difference in eating habits. I may know it, but I want the burger. I may know it, but this is what I'm going to do. In other words, the knowledge has not made a difference in how they lived. And I'm afraid that's the way many believers come to Revelation. Oh, it's good to know. I know the end of the book and it's great, but it does not impact how they live. I don't think that's the option that God designs. In fact, look at verse 7 to see what God intends us to do with the message that Jesus is coming. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now this is a beatitude. Blessed or happy is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Once again, John is just reiterating something he has written earlier. On the screen, you'll see Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. To my knowledge, Revelation is the only book that has a blessing pronounced upon it if it's read aloud. So you want to bless your family? Gather around and read Revelation aloud. But it doesn't stop there. Blessed are those who hear. And now look at what it says. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. God does not desire us to hunker in the bunker. He doesn't desire for us to take knowledge and do nothing with it. He desires for us to hear the word and to keep it, which means to obey it. Now, if we understand prophecy only as foretelling the future, that makes no sense to us. I mean, what do you do if you just know the future? 
That's where we need to come back to the idea of what prophecy is and why I believe in verse 6 God said the spirit of the prophets comes from him. Because the role of the prophet in the Old and the New Testament was this. Here's what God's word says. People, here's where you are. Repent. Come back to God. That's why the prophets were killed. They weren't killed because they predicted a bright and rosy future. They were killed because they had the audacity to say, here's what God has said, and here's where you are. Repent. So that is the weight of the message of Revelation. It is a call for people to repent. So as we seek, how do we apply the truth of the word? How do we obey the words of this prophecy? First way is this. We need to practice repentance. If we are to keep the prophecy of Revelation... Our lives must be characterized by repentance. The call to repent occurs 12 times in the book of Revelation. It's interesting that when you observe those 12 times, four of them occur in the middle section of the book. That's where God's judgment is being poured out upon the world. Four times it says, these things happened, but the people did not repent. Tragically, it says they did not turn to God but the majority of the calls to repent are found in the first three chapters. The first three chapters are where God speaks specifically to seven churches that show characteristics of the churches all throughout the ages. And you know what his primary message to those churches is? Repent. We're reminded in 2 Peter that judgment begins with the house of God. I know that repentance is not a popular word today. But it's a word that we cannot ignore. Because repentance is the first word of the gospel. In Mark, when Jesus preached his first message in chapter 1, his message was simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Father, I really believe Satan doesn't want this message to be heard because he's fighting this. He's doing everything that he can to distract us, to get us off track. But Lord, we know that in Jesus Christ we are overcomers. And we know that the message of the gospel cannot be quietened and it cannot be quelled. It will be proclaimed. So Father, we pray for your grace that the message, your message, will be heard this morning and we will respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Usually when we think of Jesus, we don't think of the main message of repentance. We like the Jesus who really sticks it to the Pharisees, don't we? Oh, when they bring the woman caught in adultery out and they're ready to stone her to death. We like the Jesus who, who writes in the sand and he says, Okay, you without sin cast the first stone. But if we stop there, we miss the point. He bends down to the woman and he says to her, Where are your condemners? Your accusers? Well, they're gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. And what does he say next? Keep on living your life as you want to live it and be happy. No. What did Jesus say to her? Go and sin no more. You've been given grace. You're not condemned. Now, change your life. Live differently. We don't mind Jesus turning over tables as long as it is not our table that he turns over. 
But when Jesus comes, he confronts us with the truth that God is holy. We are sinners who have turned from God and are not seeking him as we ought to. And he says, by God's grace, you can return to him. You see, repentance is a change of mind and heart that results in a changed life. Repentance is central to the gospel. Listen carefully to this. One cannot say they believe and refuse to repent. Those two things are contradictory. Satan himself believes. He knows more theology than all of us combined. But there is no repentance in Satan whatsoever. If we say we believe, our belief will be demonstrated in a continual sense of repentance and turning away from sin. Now many people will say, well pastor, then it's not by grace, is it? If repentance is a condition for salvation, it's not by grace. But understand, you and I cannot repent without the grace of God. It is the grace of God that brings us to the point of repentance, that turns our hearts toward him. And this conjoinder of belief and repentance is demonstrated, for example, in Acts 17, verses 30 and 34. Up on the screen, when Paul, you'll see this passage, when Paul has been preaching at the Areopagus, he says to this group of Greeks, these philosophers, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to do what? Repent. Now, at the end of this, four verses later, some men joined him. In other words, they believed. Now, are we to understand that somewhere between verse 30 and verse 34, Paul watered down the message and said, okay, okay, okay. This repentance thing is hard, so if you just want to believe in your mind, that's enough. No, no, no. Belief here in verse 34 is evidenced by repentance, turning away from sin. Now understand, the way I view repentance is this. It's that we recognize that Jesus Christ offers us the path to God to gain the joy that we desire above everything else. You see, when we think of repentance, we get the idea of going around in, in mourning all the time. And there may be an aspect of that. But to me, repentance is recognizing that the path I'm on is a lie. It will lead to destruction. It is sin that will destroy. And that if I turn from it and go 180 degrees toward the cross of Jesus Christ, there I will find life. There I will find joy. There I will find the happiness that Satan lied to me about thinking my sin would give me. We are saved from God's wrath because we are sinners and because God in his mercy has made the way for us to repent and to know him through Jesus Christ. The first message is repent. What's the gospel? It's not how good we are, how kind we are. Non-believers can be good. Non-believers can be kind. It's not how sweet we are. Non-believers can be sweet. But it's that as believers, we fall before a holy God and we say, have mercy upon me through Jesus Christ. I can't save myself. I can't turn from my own sin, Lord, help me. My only hope is Jesus. That's the message of repentance through and through revelation. And he starts with the church. And this is why he starts with the church. We're the models. You see, the second way of keeping the message is this. 
It's being on guard against temptation, believers. Revelation continually calls the believer to holiness and faithful obedience. And church, it warns us about two things, two temptations that will lead us away from God. The first temptation is to a life of comfort by trying to escape persecution. You see, as we begin to suffer for the faith, we'll begin to question, is it really worth it? As the price of following Christ continues to increase, we will continually ask, are we willing to pay that price? That's what some of the churches were facing. Because they didn't want to pay the price, they were saying, well, we'll just water down our commitment to the Lord. The other thing that caused the believers to water down their faith was comfort, joy, pleasure. You see, that can be a death trap to our souls. Pleasure can lure us into a complacency where we forget our need for the gospel. Russell Moore in his book, Tried and Tempted, demonstrates how pleasure and life at ease can lead us into our own destruction. It's a little bit rough, so bear, bear with me. He talks about how research was done at slaughterhouses where cattle are taken to become steak. Problem is, is that when cattle are taken to this place and they're handled roughly, they tense up. And that causes the meat to be tough and almost unedible. So research was done. And they found out that if you bring the cattle in and you have soothing music and people don't yell at them and you treat them kindly, and they even have this chute now they created that as the cattle walk through it, it squeezes them gently like in their mother's womb. They will relax and they'll just float through things until BAM! They don't even see it coming. And they're relaxed. And Russell Moore says that's exactly what Satan wants to do to us through comfort, through ease. Now, am I saying that it's wrong to enjoy things? Not at all. As long as that joy is kept in proper perspective. See, and that's how we need to answer these two, two things. How do we answer the temptation to persecution and the temptation to pleasure? Two things. We need a vision of what will be. That's what Revelation's provided. Revelation has said what awaits you is worth the price of the suffering you have now. And it also tells us this, that the joys and pleasures we have here are nothing compared to the joys and pleasures that will await. So what's the proper way to enjoy the things of life? It's with this, Lord, I thank you for this. Because this pleasure reminds me of how great and glorious heaven will be. And that that's where I want to be. So we need to have a vision of the future that will encourage us through suffering and through the pleasures of life. And the second thing we need is this. We need a community to assist us and admonish us. This week I finished reading through Ecclesiastes and I'm always struck in chapter 9 where it says, pity the person who falls down and has no one there to pick them up. You see, in this age of isolationism and individualism, we shy away from really being involved with the group. My faith is none of their business. That goes contrary to the New Testament because the New Testament says we are in this together. 
And we need one another encouraging us, admonishing us, exhorting us, speaking words of comfort at times and words of challenge at times in the context of love to spur us on. We need that. In the Roman days when a Caesar had conquered another people and he came riding back into Rome, there would be a huge parade. Millions of people would line the streets yelling, Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar! Conqueror of all! And in the midst of this parade, there was one slave that had been given an assignment. This slave's job was to be on the chariot with Caesar. And as Caesar was riding through these, this parade with people yelling his name, giving him praise, the servant was standing next to him, whispering in his ear, Thou art mortal. Thou art mortal. You will die one day. We need that to us to remind us that God is what satisfies. That God is who will fill our hearts. And we need that in community so that we can guard against those temptations. The third thing is this. We need to worship God. It's very interesting that John retells, I think, the story of where he fell at the feet to worship the angel. Why would John do that? Verses 8 through 9. He, followed, he recounts the story, I think. When I heard these things, we read it in chapter 19. I think he's recounting it because worship is the central point of the book. Worship of Jesus. And it is so easy to get sidetracked in what we worship. Now, don't just think of worship as what we do here. Worship is about value. And what you supremely value. So that when you go into the work week tomorrow, when you get at work, and it's a Monday... And if it's not Monday tomorrow, it will be a Monday later in the week. You can remember that God is what you supremely value. That you're not there just for the job. You're not there just for the, You're there for God. You're there because that is worship and what you value. And the truth is, you and I are assailed from a million different messages each day, both outwardly and inwardly, as to what we are to value. So we need to be, we need to be realigned. Did you know such an alignment happened to all the GPSs in Australia on January 1st of this year? Every GPS in Australia was off because Australia is drifting. Since 19, between 1996 and 2011, it had drifted five feet. So every time a signal was sent up to the satellites to get the GPS, it was off. It lead them to the wrong spot. So they said on January 1st, we're going to recalibrate things so that what you see on the GPS matches reality. Believers, that's what worship does for us in this setting. We worship every moment of every day of our lives. We worship something. But when we come here, this is what recalibrates us as we worship with one another to see who God is. Revelation is about worship. Will you worship Jesus or Satan? Will you worship the lamb or the dragon? Will you worship the line of the tribe of Judah or the beast who rises out of the sea? Who will you worship? That's where he ends clearly. Worship God. Verses 10 and 11 end with the challenge. Don't seal up the words. When Daniel saw a prophecy at the end of the book, he was told to seal it because now wasn't the time. Now the message is told to go out into the world because now the time is near. Now verse 11 is difficult. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. It's puzzling. 
But I think it's saying now is the time to choose. Because when Christ returns, it will be too late. You've already been given the warning. When the hurricane hits and the floodwaters rise, it's too late to evacuate. It's like saying, choose carefully the rut you're in. It's like a sign on an Alaskan dirt road that said, choose carefully your rut. You'll be in it for the next 50 miles. What's the rut of your life? The longer you travel down that rut, the more difficult it is to turn from it. So that's why the warning is given. Evildoer, we still do evil. Filthy person, we still do filthy. Holy, will you continue in holiness? Now is the time to decide. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me if you will. Jesus is coming. Now what? Well, the book of Revelation is clear. Keep the words of the prophecy through repentance, through guarding against temptation, and by worshiping God. I'm going to ask Nathan to join me here in the front. This morning, if you feel the call of the Holy Spirit that you need to turn to him in repentance, we're here to pray with you. You may need to come and just kneel at the kneeling bench and just say, Lord, I've not been guarding against temptation. I've been giving in to it. Lord, forgive me. I repent. And we have a God who is so gracious that he has said, when you come to me in repentance, I'll not turn you away. There is no sin so great that he cannot forgive it. Some of us, we may need to repent of our apathy. To say, Lord, I confess to you, I've just not cared. Change my heart, oh God. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and then after this prayer, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a glorious hymn, knowing that our victory over sin is in Jesus. Our victory over the world is in Jesus. And as we begin to sing, if you need to respond, please come. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to give us the message that Jesus is coming soon. You want us to be ready, Lord. Help us, Father, to heed and to obey, to keep the words of the prophecy that you have given so that we will seek you in all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.